Trojan fans. It's time for another installment of the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast. We give you the inside scoop on everything about USC football recruiting from the experts who know what they're talking about. Which players have an offer, which ones don't, who the coaches like, and who our experts like. And now, here are your co-hosts for the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher Ryan Abraham and uscfootball.com national recruiting analyst Gerard Martinez. Oh, two Roger fans, welcome to the Parastyle Podcast on a Thursday. Today we're going to talk some USC football recruiting with Gerard Martinez. He is our national recruiting analyst for uscfootball.com. If you have any questions or comments for the show, you can always email us, podcast at uscfootball.com or give us a call at 424 424- 254-9141. That's 424-254-9141. You can call, leave a voicemail, or send us a text. Um, so if you want to subscribe, go to iTunes.com slash Parastyle Podcast. We're on iTunes, which is the most popular podcasting service out there. Then, of course, we're at a bunch of other ones, too, like Stitcher Radio and TuneIn Radio, Audio Boom, where we host the podcast. Uh, so lots of different ways to download the show. If you have any problems with that, just email us, podcast at uscfootball.com. We'd be happy to help you out. And uh, if you want to follow our guest, Gerard Martinez, he is on Twitter, at GMartLive. Always some interesting tweets from Gerard. And speaking of interesting tweets, what's going on? How are you doing, Gerard? No interesting tweets. No interesting tweets today. No. But um, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm always at odds with Twitter. Twitter is uh, <laughs> you know, your best friend and your worst enemy at times. And so you have to keep Twitter at bay. That's why my avatar on Twitter is a arrow going through the Twitter bird. It's sort of like, I hate you, Twitter. But then I also want to kill Twitter and be good at Twitter. So it's kind of a little bit of a dichotomy there. It is. It's kind of funny. People, I think, uh, I can mean, people talk about that. Oh, Gerard. Yeah. He's, doesn't his icon like a arrow through the head of the Twitter bird? I'm like, yeah, that's Gerard, <laughs> you know, but it is like a necessary <laughs> evil. Like, and if I wasn't, like, if you didn't work, like, in this industry, would you, I wouldn't have Twitter, I don't think. Um, not, not even, not even. Yeah. I, I just don't feel like I need to tell people about my daily routine. <laughs> I'm not that narcissistic, so yeah, if I didn't have to do this for business or actually report news to people, uh, I would not have a Twitter. I might still have a Facebook, but I rarely use Facebook these days mm-hmm. either. So, um, yeah, that would be uh, not something that I would use every day or feel like uh, that it was uh, something that I needed to have a part of my life the way I do. <laughs> These days yeah. where I've got notifications popping up on my phone every couple of minutes. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I use Facebook, like, personal stuff, and we'll put pictures and everything and vacations. Like, that's kind of like the narcissistic where you share what what's going on with your friends and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, yeah, Twitter, I mean, I, I guess when there's, like, events going on, if there's, like, some kind of, you know, terror, ter- whatever, there's some national news or international news. You always get stuff on Twitter like five, ten minutes before like the, the talking head on CNN will address it. But um, I just don't think I would have one. And it's funny because of the job, like I'm on it all the time, like during games, you're tweeting all that kind of stuff. But obviously a lot of people use it. I mean, if you look at celebrities and stuff, they get millions and millions of followers. And, you know, the people that follow us that they're, you know, if they're really into, hey, I'm really into USC football, I'm going to follow Gerard, I'm going to follow Ryan and kind of find out what's going on, I guess. Yeah, although I kind of roll my eyes a little bit, some of these celebrities and just sometimes random people will have like 100,000 followers and you're going, really, how many of those did you buy? Because that's also a big business 
in Twitter because lazy companies look at people and they see, okay, how many Twitter followers do you have? And that's especially true in the entertainment industry and in the news industry. And people are getting hired because of how many Twitter followers they have. And a lot of times that's not necessarily accurate because you know that that person is, is not necessarily as popular as their Twitter followers yeah. would lead you to believe. And then you also have, you know, the hot chick effect. And, you know, I hate to be the hater because, <laughs> you know, hey, hot chicks, they got to they gotta find their niche too, but sometimes you just go look at it and, you know, there's this, you know, this hot chick that has, like, crazy amount of followers and you're going, this person is, is completely on the outside looking in of whatever she's tweeting about, but, you know, she's good looking and she puts up photos of herself and people like to follow that. So that's <laughs> part of uh, the Twitter social media uh, aspect of these things nowadays too. Send all your hate mail to gm at uscfootball.com. Well, you see that with Twitch and the video game side of things a lot, too, where you get these chick video gamers that are hot and they're wearing, you know, these bustiers and these little low-cut tops and they have, man, they have all these followers and they've got all these subscribers and they can't play these games at all. They're terrible. And it's like, you know, like, really? Come on, guys. Like, you know. But hey, you got to get in where you fit in. Yeah. What I mean, if there's a, a, a female that's very good at playing the game, but she's not as good looking, she might not get as many followers, even though the reason you're supposed to follow her is because how good at the game she is and all that kind of stuff. I would Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's 100% true. All right. Well, uh, maybe enough of off topic there. We're going to, um, our podcast today, this is actually a free podcast. So we're, this is going up on the regular peristylepodcast.com, Peristyle Podcast, uh, uh, feed. Um, so you can get it all over the place. Um, but we we have a sponsorship today, Trader Joe's. So they've uh, been sponsoring our shows recently. We really appreciate them. And uh, I don't know if you go much, Gerard, but it's my favorite uh, store to go to. They just opened a new one in Hermosa Beach. So it'll be in August of 2017. They'll be in their 50th year uh, of doing business. Um, so that's pretty cool. There's going to be a, a new one that's going to be awesome at, uh, at USC. Um, you know, at the new, uh, center there that they're building. So that's going to be pretty cool. Um, the first one was actually, uh, up in Pasadena on a Royal Parkway. So, uh, it's still a favorite for, for a lot of fans. I was there this morning. It's funny. I went to work out, uh, USC's workout in the morning. I get a text from my wife. Hey, can you stop by TJ's and, uh, pick up? She wanted kale and bananas. So I'm like, all right. Um, so I, she smoothie time. Smoothie time. Yeah. So I, I stop in Trader Joe's on the way home. It's like 8.30 in the morning. And there's a bunch of people in there. I'm like, man, what's everyone doing here? Um, so <laughs> that's, I picked, that's true of a lot of places in L.A. It's like, 11.30 at night doing? and you're on the freeway. And there's traffic. You're going, where is everybody going? Yeah. I'm like, why? It's like 8.30 in the morning or 9. I mean, it was 9 or something. I don't know. But So I go in there and then I kind of made her a little mad because I picked up, you know, I got some for her. But then I'm like, hmm, what can I get? What do I want for breakfast? And they have these little um, carrot, mini carrot cakes. <laughs> <laughs> they look like cupcakes with the cream cheese icing. And I never had them. I've tried a lot of their sweets. I haven't tried that. So I picked one up. That was my breakfast, and it was really good. So anyway, I, I love going to Trader Joe's. Hopefully you guys can check it out, too. Um, yeah, I'm a trail mix guy. I love the Trader Joe's trail mix. Oh, really? Okay. Um, but, yeah, it's good stuff. And, yeah, we, we're really excited. They just opened a new one in Hermosa Beach. But there's, like, four or five of them within, like, three miles of my house. So there's plenty of uh, choices to choose from. But, but definitely go check it out. Uh, go check out Trader Joe's. We appreciate um, them being able to sponsor the podcast and help this thing going. And we really love going there. So it's uh, it's a cool thing. Um, well, Gerard, so jumping in to a couple of different topics, I guess. Uh, From trail mix to the recruiting trail. There you go. There's your yeah. segue. Well, we had, you know, talking about Twitter to Trader Joe's. And now we're going to talk about 
Rising Stars. Uh, so we got we have some recruiting questions. We're going to get to, but there are a couple other topics too I wanted to discuss. Uh, two of them to start. Rising Stars. We'll start with that, and then we're going to get into. Uh, you did a, a great piece on the USC support staff, so I want to ask you some questions about that. But the, as far as Rising Stars go, things are a little different this year, right? I mean, they've, they've kind of changed the structure of the camp. They've totally changed the structure. I mean, Rising Stars used to be back-to-back days in late June. Now they basically made Rising Stars two individual camps. They still have a date on the 25th in June, but now they've made another Rising Stars camp which used to be really two camps. It used to be the lineman camp and used to be skills camp. And so now that camp is going to be this weekend. It's basically one camp. So we always kind of knew rising, or we knew rising stars to be the out of state, the camp that really brought in the biggest names. And that still seems to be holding true. It seems that USC is really kind of pivoting, um, a lot of their top prospects from a national standpoint on rising stars. Although we talked about with the NCAA rule changes, and college, camp, uh, college uh, universities, I guess, with their camps, are not allowed to pay high school coaches to be able to come in and actually work the camps. It, it sort of hurts the ability for those uh, coaches to bring kids in from out of state because a lot of times they get stipends, and they could use those stipends uh, to get those kids on those flights and be able to bring them out to the camps, and you're no longer allowed to do that because the high school coaches are no longer to, <laughs> allowed to work the camps. Um, so we're going to see probably – a reduction, um, a decrease of the amount of like top out-of-state guys. There's still going to be some out-of-state guys. There's a couple of uh, running backs that are going to be coming in for that 25th camp. Um, but that's the 25th. We'll kind of cross that bridge when we get to it. Uh, this camp uh, for this weekend, like I said before, has always been the skills lineman camp. And so it's always been local. Uh, it's really been about more underclassmen, local kids. I think you're going to see that again, um, you know, this year, but instead of it being two separate camps, it's going to be one camp and they're calling it rising stars. So, uh, you're going to get, you know, a lot of got some of the Bosco linemen, they're going to be down there. They've got a few kids, um, that could be in line for potential offers. Um, you're going to have uh, a couple kids from modern day. Um, from what I understand, uh, Solomon, uh, Tui Alapupu is supposed to be at the camp also this weekend. I'm not 100% sure because there's also an Adidas camp nationally that's going around um, that uh, a few of the local kids are going to. And so, you, I mean, nowadays you have all these different events and they're all sort of competing. UCLA also has a seven-on-seven tournament and a big man challenge Saturday. Um, so it's going to be kind of a packed weekend. We'll see who ends up going where. Um, but this weekend tends to be more about probably 2019, 2020 kids, and a lot of the more local kids, and maybe some of those Plan B type guys, um, guys at USC just, you know, they kind of get involved with. They may even give some scholarship offers to some guys that they're not necessarily ready to take, but guys that they want to sort of cultivate and have as Plan Bs. We saw that last year. They offered a few guys during the summer at camps that I don't think USC had any intention on taking, and it really was one of those things where they were just sort of um, giving themselves maybe a fallback plan just in case things didn't work out with some national guys or some of the top guys locally. So um, that's sort of what this camp is going to be, probably 500 to 600 kids. So it's going to be a big camp, um, but it's not necessarily, I think, going to be high in terms of the top prospects that they're looking at. Yeah, the uh, I'm curious to see what ends up if there's any kind of fallout from these rule changes and how they're structuring things differently. I don't, do you do you expect there to be much um, as far as you, on the recruiting side, or do you think it's just going to be like, well, you just have to adapt and 
make these kind of changes as, as the NCAA changes rules? Yeah, the only upside with the rules now is that the coaches are, are allowed to openly recruit at the camps and at clinics, uh, which was sort of a joke before because, you know, I mean, who's to say when you have a conversation with a kid that um, it wasn't recruiting before or, or what have you? I mean, you take them on a tour and you have them come up and, and meet you in the office, and, and the rule was always they had to leave campus and then come back on campus, and nobody, nobody really observed that rule. It was, it was ridiculous. It was stupid. Like, you're going to be at a camp all day long, and then you're going to have to drive off campus and leave campus and then come back to campus in order to go meet with the coach to get the scholarship offer. That, that was just insane. So uh, it was a, it was, it's a new rule that now they're allowing coaches to be able to recruit openly, but it's something that I think was going on. On pretty much, you know, throughout. Um, so that's really the only, like, the, the NCAA goes, well, now you can do this. And it's like, you know, everybody's already been doing that. Um, I think the big issue is definitely not having the high school coaches work the camps. It's just getting kids there, it really tends to depend on the high school coaches, um, you know, sometimes parents and what have you. But you, usually college coaches can get a hold of high school coaches. And if the high school coach has uh, some power in that situation, he can throw a bunch of kids in the in the van or, or whatever and, and get those kids to the camp. And with them being sort of out of the loop a little more and not having a reason or a purpose to be there working the camp, it's definitely going to impact the attendance of these camps. Definitely. It's going to be a big deal. And so we're going to see, you know, how it works just with this camp in terms of the local prospects. Um, if there's a bunch of guys that are locally – you would expect to be at the camp that aren't showing up to camp, then you know that from a national standpoint it's going to be even a bigger deal. Now, like I said, there are some guys that are already um, kind of signed up uh, for the Rising Stars camp for the 25th. Um, uh, Jameer Smith is a guy that just offered uh, from North Carolina uh, that has already set a date. He's going to come out and he's going to visit USC, and he's probably going to camp at USC. Um, so there's some guys that – you know, they've, they've some top running backs and some top prospects that they should still be able to bring in. But the the amount, you know, where you had like last year, you had, you know, a dozen, probably more than a dozen kids that were top prospects uh, that were coming in from Florida and from all over the place that, you know, attended the camps at USC. I don't think you're going to see quite as much of that. I think it's going to be a little more few and far between and trying to really kind of center in on guys that are really serious. Now, the good thing is that maybe it gives you a little better feel for the guys that are really serious because they really have to go out of their own pocket to come out to USC, whereas before it might have just been a stipend that you're given to a coach or an assistant coach to bring them out there. And, you know, that was still it was still important. It was still showing a lot of incentive. But now it's really like, okay, yeah, the kid's probably paying out of his own pocket to come out. So that tells you a little more about uh, how much is how, how interested he is in USC. Well, we'll be out there and uh... – covering the camp so check back on uscfootball.com early next week uh we'll let you know what's going down what kind of athletes are out there what kind of prospects any offers things like that so we'll be we'll be all over it we'll get the team down there um also gerard there was uh three really good stories uh that you put up uh about the usc support staff and i think uh it seemed it was very well received on uscfootball.com I, I don't know I think some USC fans didn't realize how important, uh, how big of a role some of the, the support staff people for USC, um, play and as far as getting recruits. And it kind of seems like organized chaos a bit at times. I don't know. How would you describe it? Uh, well, with the support staff, no, I mean, it's, 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 
it's organized chaos when you get to that, you know, late stage of the recruiting process, you get to January, but that's just sort of the recruiting process. I mean, that's how it is for everybody. And whether it's full-time staff or the support staff, everybody's scrambling to try to figure out, all right, what's this kid thinking? You know, that's, that's what it comes down to. You're trying to uh, anticipate what a 17 year old kid is thinking. And that's very, very difficult to do. Um, But in, in the grand scheme of things with USC, I think, there's two things that sort of stand out. One is is that they're a bit undermanned. Um, you know, when talking to uh, Kenato Hudson, who coached at USC and was a support staff member for six years, and now he's gone on to a full-time cornerbacks uh, coach role with Florida Atlantic with Lane Kiffin, uh, he kind of talks about, you know, and he's, and he's able to talk about it, I think, a little more openly because he's been through it and now he's, you know, at another school. He has a different perspective of things. And Kenyatta has been around a lot. Like, he is really a true grinder and really a prolific support staff member. Like, one of those few guys nationally in a support staff role that actually went out and recruited for USC on the road. And not just recruited, but recruited well. I mean, he was involved with a lot of the guys that they recruited in Florida. Um, obviously, he was at Mainland High School coaching when he came to USC, so he was involved with Leonard Williams and Quentin Power, both Mainland High School kids. But he was also involved with guys like Jamel Cook and Keyshawn Young, who were guys that were Miami guys. And so um, you've got a guy that was not only involved with a lot of recruits, but he's involved with a lot of other schools and went to a lot of other camps because he was trying to move up. He was trying to find a full-time role. And, you know, at USC, those guys, eh, they're not paid, I think, as much as you get at some of the bigger schools. So, you know, those guys are always kind of looking and going, all right, you know, I mean, i got to find somewhere where I can, you know, make money that, that's going to be able to support my family, and especially if you're living in Southern California with, you know, just the, the cost of living, it's, it's difficult. And so when you're comparing with, you know, LSU and Alabama and Florida, and he's been around all those programs, and he talked a little bit about going to camps and working camps, and we got into the whole, you know, high school coaches not being able to work camps and sort of the, the rules and what the future of support staffs are going to look like. But with him, I mean, his opinion was, you know, Alabama's probably got 30 strong in terms of just their recruiting department, their support staff. Uh, LSU is 20-plus. Um, and, you know, he talked about LSU because he was just at LSU a few days uh, before I spoke with him and was just kind of talking about how, you know, they've got a 2020 board, uh, they've got their 2019 board all set up. It's like a science. I mean, everything is very well organized. The recruiting department is set in a certain way. Everybody kind of knows what they're doing, and they're very staffed. So you can have people on all kinds of different projects and working simultaneously, whereas at USC the past few years they really have had a lot of just a few guys doing a lot of different tasks. I mean, at one point you had guys like, I mean, I, I, I've talked about it before, but I mean, you had Alex Rios, who is really kind of a high school relations um, host guy that kind of comes in. He's a director of recruiting, but really he ends up hosting a lot of kids on unofficial visits. You see him a lot, you know, at practices, and he's trying to get everything organized and managed. I mean, he ended up having to basically run Rashad Gary's recruitment when Rashad Gary was coming out of high school because at that point the whole defensive staff had been fired outside of uh, Peter Serbin, and USC just didn't have any coaches. They didn't have anybody to go on the road. They didn't have anybody to, to run those things, and, and Alex Rios ended up being the guy that was, you know, had the most contact with Rashad Gary's mom, who was basically running that recruitment for Rashad Gary, and he was the one that got him on the visit and got him, you know, uh, now USC didn't have a, full, a full-time defensive line coach hired yet, so it made it kind of hard to be able to really compete with Ohio State and Michigan and some of these other schools, Clemson, that are going and trying to get Rashad Gary number one player in the country 
country. And so, you know, I mean, not only was he, you know, a guy that, I mean, he wasn't a full-time coach or, or, or would have those responsibilities normally at a college, uh, but he was doing it even without a full-time defensive line coach. So, I mean, you kind of look at this and you look at the turnover at USC, and these guys have been there. You know, they've all been there, and they've all had to do with the challenges. And Kenyatta was one of those guys that, I mean, he, he'd been there for the longest, and it was just interesting talking to him from a perspective standpoint because now he's kind of away from it, and now he's at a school where – that logo doesn't mean as much, and that's really tough, and he's recruiting hard. But, you know, he's like, man, you know, really being a support staff member at USC and walking through the door, I had a lot more pull than now being a full-time coach, but I'm at FAU. And so he talked a little bit about that, the power of USC and sort of the power of that logo um, and, and how USC is really kind of able to get away with, with less and, and, and making more of it. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that we've seen with USC kind of over the years. You know, facilities is something that USC, I mean, from, for all Pete Carroll's um, tenure at USC and all the success they had, they had the worst facilities in the world. I mean, you go downstairs at Heritage Hall and it looked like, it felt like you were in a submarine or something. It was terrible. You had you know, pipes and all kinds of stuff. It was, it was absolutely a joke. And so they finally got up with the facilities, and USC's never going to be leading the, 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 the country in facilities. That's just not what they're going to do. Now when you've got Oregon up there and you've got Alabama and you've got Clemson, and, and kind of what this story was about was USC still, from a people standpoint, people are the ones really bringing in the recruits. That, that still stands out the most. And, and even with guys like Gavin Morris, who, who has so many relationships and is tied into so many different recruitments, I mean, that's a guy that's just working and developing relationships and turning those into letters of intent. It's not big screens and, oh, amazing indoor football facilities and all this other nonsense because USC doesn't have it. Um, and, and those guys are doing that with less. I mean, they're, they're just, you know, there's probably about five, six guys maybe in that recruiting staff uh, where they're, they're act, I mean, that's kind of like their focus, their job. Guys like Eric Ziskin, Alex Rios, uh, Gavin Morris, Alex Collins, um, those guys are all sort of involved with it, but it's a small group, you know, compared to what you have uh, naturally. So that's something that, you know, we've talked about in the past, the arms race with the support staff. USC has to improve. They have to invest more in that. Alabama's in almost three, four million dollars now in terms of what they're investing in support staff. Uh, USC's probably closer to maybe half a million, you know, 400,000, 500,000. That's just an estimate. I mean, they're private school. They're not going to give out those kind of numbers, but I, I wouldn't think that they're, they're really even close to a million dollars at this point. So, you know, you got to step it up. If you're going to play with the big boys, you got to invest more with that. But then you look at the new rules and you look at how that might handicap hirings. That sort of changes things, you know, and, and for, for a time, and we talked about this in the podcast before, the question was, will, US, will support staff begin to develop into like NFL scouting staffs? You know, where support, will support staffs end up being those guys that end up scouting and going out and evaluating during the offseason, and then the, head, or the, the assistant coaches and the head coach really only get involved until – you get to that in-home visit point, which is, you know, late November, early December, where they can get on the road and they can do those in-home visits. But before that, really the bulk of the evaluations and, and the, the legwork is going to be done by the scouting staff. The interesting thing is Gavin and both Kenyota both thought, no, that's not going to happen. We don't, I don't think that's ever going to be that way. I, I think that the assistant coaches are always going to have to be involved with recruiting in the offseason to some extent, and they're going to have to be involved with evaluations. So, um, that puts a lot of stress on those guys. You know, those guys are, are there's a lot more wear and tear when, you know, you got to get on the plane on your bye week um, after, you know, going through practice and, and going.
go out of state and hit and hit a couple of high schools and then come back and then boom you're right back into the mix uh, for game week. Yeah, um, do, you, do you think that some of the USC fans out there are kind of upset when they hear like, "Hey man, they're charging all this money for personal seat licenses and stuff and for upgrading the Coliseum, but they're not spending money on stuff like support staff uh, that other schools are doing." Yeah. Yeah, and and they should be to some extent. I, I think that um, it's just one of those things that you got to be competitive, and you got to be competitive in all areas. And and USC is able to get away with it because, from a recruiting standpoint, uh, like I said before, there there is a, an aspect of USC recruits itself. Um, I know we, we we say that, and and I say that, but I say that with a grain of salt because you, they, these guys do bust their butts to recruit. You know, it's not, it's not one of those things. It's like, Oh yeah, we just sit back and, and really don't do much to be able to sign guys. No, you, you, you do. But in comparison to what it's like at Oregon state, yeah, USC recruits itself and they're always going to be able to get some guys. So I think when it comes to the investment, it's always been uh, a tradition at USC to have high talent because a inherently, I think the school, just this location, you're going to get a lot of talent. And the school, from a tradition standpoint, speaks for itself and the amount of NFL players. And that stuff does recruit itself. Those are facts. Those are things that are inherent with the university that draw kids to it. But it's it's one of those things where that gets people on campus. That gets eyes on the logo. But the difference between that and actually signing those players is always there's a gap there. And that's where you need people that can really produce and can really work and can really get in there and, and get those relationships and, and kind of, you know, dot the I's, cross the T's, and you got to be competitive somewhat. And, and uh, it's tough. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, 20 more guys on a, a coaching staff um, that you're competing against for a kid, it's like, wow, I mean, you know, those guys are so much restricted and handicapped because it is support staff, and those guys can't go out there and do everything. Um, that a full-time coach can, but they can assist that full-time coach in a lot of ways, you know, research and, and just making sure that, you know, they understand all the angles and, and they're championing, you know, for that kid and they're trying to figure out, you know, what's, what's the important factors and how do we present our school in the light that is favorable to those factors. And it, all, and it just takes, you know, manpower. And now with Twitter and email in social media, there's a lot more going into the graphics. There's a lot more going into, you know, hey, presenting the university with with cool little um, sort of poster postcards, if you will. You see those pop up now a lot on Twitter and stuff like that. So that part of it is also a big deal. And I think for the most part right now, USC is using a lot of student workers to do that. So it's sort of that free labor that they're getting when it comes to all that kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that I can see, you know, there's, there's always those things that come up with USC though, right? I mean, it's like renovations, you know, they're putting, um, you know, all these millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in the renovation and people go, well, what are they really getting out of it? You know, it doesn't seem like they're renovating enough. They should be doing more. And there's, there's areas of the Coliseum that really need work that are getting overlooked. And so, you know, there's always those critical aspects and it sort of seems like, that that happens with USC they they're kind of one foot in the in the water a bit you know with things and then sort of maybe not completely into it they're not all invested into um the 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 football aspect of things sometimes um it seems like it's like yeah we kind of want to be involved with it and we want to do well but the football program almost most has to prove itself as a commodity 
before the money follows. It's not the money's going to be there ahead of time like you'd see with an LSU or an Alabama where it's just invest millions of dollars and try to produce something from that. With USC, it's always been, hey, you know, if Pete Carroll can win three championships in a row, yeah, we'll make him the highest-paid coach in college football. Like, USC did that. They stepped up, and they had those guys, and everybody on that staff was being paid well. But they had to prove ahead of time. They had to prove that they could win national championships, that the program could be dominant. And then it was like, okay, people step up and say, okay, now we got to pay these guys for that amount of money. So it's a, it, I think it just works differently at USC. You know, you mentioned Pete Carroll. There's one Before we jump into the questions, um, by the time, you know, Pete Carroll was established, like you said, he could get what he wanted. I'm curious to see if this, like, kind of support system war uh, was going on and Pete Carroll was the head coach. I kind of assumed that they would have a lot more people on the support staff just because he had, you know, he could say things and make things happen, you know. Um, what do you think? Do you think if he was around, they would have a lot more people on the support staff? Yeah, and he continued winning. Oh, definitely. Because that's what we saw. We, we saw it all follow. You know, we saw Pete Carroll wasn't making a bunch of money. The staff wasn't making a bunch of money when he got to USC. Um, it was really when they started winning games and they won a national championship that all of a sudden he became the highest paid coach. At one point he was the highest paid college coach in the nation. And, and, but that was all afterwards. And it's just like the McKay Center. The McKay Center was a result of all that success. It wasn't because USC just decided, hey, you know, it's time to update our facilities. It was like, okay, we're winning a bunch now. They've proven that they can bring in the eyes and the butts in the seats and the, 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 the TV rights and, you know, everything that went along with all the success and the Heisman trophies and the, the first-round picks, and it kind of, like, paid for the McKay Center. Um, and that's the scary thing is that, you know, if USC doesn't win, then you kind of look at things and you go, okay, it's going to, you know, it's going to deteriorate. It's going to be at the point of where when Pete Carroll came in, the facilities were where they were with the Heritage Hall and, and sort of the weight room and everything, which was, again, it was, it was like junior high-ish. I mean, it really was not on par when you looked at Texas and you looked at some of these other schools in the SEC and what they were doing for facilities and football-only facilities. You know, I mean, USC doesn't even have a football-only facility at this point. It's still the McKay Center is just a sports facility in general for athletes at USC. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 they're in a good position right now because, you know, if Clay Kelton can win, you're kind of, in a way, still overlapping with some of the success of Pete Carroll. You know, not a, I mean, the McKay Center isn't that old, and it still is nice enough that it's not one of those things that you're sort of recruiting despite of, because that's sort of what USC was doing when Pete Carroll was there. It was like, don't worry about the facilities being crappy. Facilities aren't going to help you win games. How do you know? Well, because we're winning a bunch of games and our facilities suck. So, you know, it was one of those things that they kind of they kind of recruited well uh, in spite of the facilities. And that was, again, people, though. That was, again, because Pete Carroll was just a dynamic personality. The coaches that he brought in were dynamic personalities, guys like Ed Ergeron, who actually he brought over from, from uh, Paul Hackett's staff. Uh, but the guys that he brought in, uh, on top of that, were just they were tuned in to recruiting and they understood how to get in and, and, and relate to kids and get you just hit those factors and champion those factors. And as people, I mean, that's, that's, that's where the trust factor comes in. And it's hard for a kid to go anywhere where he doesn't feel comfortable and he doesn't trust the people that are going to really have a say in his football career and really his scholastic career overall. Um, and, and that's, that's where it's big. That's where a guy like Gavin Morris is just money because 
those kids trust him and they feel comfortable around him. He's been around the, the seven-on circuit coming from BTG Sports. He just sort of knows the modern-day recruiting model and sort of how things work with kids. And so that gives USC a, a really good point of contact where they feel comfortable immediately, and that goes a long ways. And like I said, it, you know, USC's always going to recruit itself, but there's just that there's a gap there between just getting kids on campus to look at the school and say, oh, I went to L.A., I took an official visit there, and the difference between actually getting that kid to sign the letter of intent. You know, the difference between Jay Tufele saying, yeah, USC's a nice school, they're in my top five, and actually getting him to sign and come in and be an impact player uh, for four years, three, four years for USC. I mean, there's just a big gap there. So that's where these guys come into effect. That's where the legwork behind the scenes, the stuff that you don't hear about, um, that these guys like Eric Ziskin, who really is kind of a quasi-recruiting coordinator, he works a lot with Johnny Nansen um, from a strategy standpoint, the paperwork and all the kind of work that goes in that you don't see, that's where that stuff, I mean, getting organized and getting focused on, okay, who's got to be where, who's talking about what, let's all make sure we're on the same page. When we call Jay tonight, that we pick up where we left off last week and our message is consistent, and that's all about trust. And when the kid feels like, okay, they're on the same page, they're all saying the same thing, this is what I'm getting into, it wipes away those uncertainties, and with out-of-state recruiting, that's a big deal. And so, yeah, that's the difference between, oh, USC is a great school, and yeah, they're great, and I want to go to USC, and I'm ready to sign with USC. This is the difference there. Gotcha. Let's jump into, we just have a few questions. We'll get to those and uh, finish up. Uh, Tarek wrote in, he said, you mentioned before that Chase Coda is not a priority for the USC coaching staff. Why do you feel that way? And can you see that changing? I never said he was not a priority, quote unquote. I think at this point, they've sort of moved to other guys. And I think that's if one of two issues here. I think either USC feels like he's a legacy and he's going to Oregon regardless, or they just like other guys more. And, and I get the sense it might be a little of a both. Um, I've always felt talking to Chase Coda directly that USC was in a great position for him. I mean, I talked about that, you know, a couple months ago, just early in the process after the first time I met him and really talked to him in depth uh, in February when he was at the Under Armour camp. Uh, we talked about his visit to USC, and he really gave me the impression, I'm serious about USC. And I think he fits what USC wants to do. I like what he brings to the table, but my opinion is my opinion. And, oh, in my opinion alone, it does not necessarily reflect what USC is thinking and what USC feels. Um, and so maybe they get a different vibe, and maybe they've, they've heard more um, and they've heard differently about where Chase Cota wants to go and what his interest really is in leaving the state. Um, but at the, uh, on the other hand, there's also sort of the, what is USC looking for? They're only going to have probably two receivers in this class. And, you know, I say three, maybe it just depends on sort of how things work out with, um, you know, early grads and, and early entrance to the, to the NFL draft and things of that nature, transfers, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really, I think two receivers that they're looking at. Um, and, you kind of have to see, okay, well, so who are they pushing for the hardest and what do those players look like profile-wise? Now, we've already talked about Marquez Ezard as being a guy that, that has got a lot of interest in USC. He's coming out for Rising Stars Camp the 25th. At least that's that he was supposed to a couple of weeks ago. That was the plan. Um, and so that that's, you know, obviously a big deal. We talked about now with kids having to pay out of their own pocket to come out, how much that is even a bigger deal uh, these days. 
So that's a guy that 6'2", 215 pounds, sort of reminds you of Juju Smith. You go, okay, I get it. I see it. USC's already had that guy. You know, they've got a guy that's been like that, sort of a playmaking receiver that runs really well after he catches the ball. Um, and you sort of look at that from, from that perspective of what they're looking for, maybe a little more of a playmaker, maybe a guy that can catch the ball and then after uh, he catches the ball, what he can do with it in his hands. And so that's sort of with the shift I feel like we've seen a bit in, in USC recruiting and just with the receiver position in general. I, I think that's sort of where it's been. So with Coda, I kind of just get the vibe. Like I don't know if he is – as highly thought of as he is with us, I guess, you know, when you're looking into recruiting board. Now, we've seen him play quite a bit, you know, this offseason. I've never seen him play in pads, but we have seen him play quite a bit in this offseason. He's been as good as really any uh, receiver that, that we've seen. I mean, just in terms of the testing numbers adding up with what he does from a production standpoint on the field and drills and during one-on-ones, He's definitely up there with every other guy we've seen. But, you know, when you're comparing him to maybe some of these other more dynamic guys that are out there nationally, that's harder. That's harder to, to say because we haven't seen – I mean, I haven't seen Marcus Ezzard play in person. Um, I've only seen tape of him. And when I see tape of him, I see, wow, this guy's a lot like Juju Smith. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot going on there that reminds me of Juju Smith. Um, so that's just one of those things that we're kind of projecting. But, again, it's, it's who USC's putting the focus on right now, and those guys don't necessarily compare favorably with a guy like Chase Cota, sort of what he brings to the table. All right. Thanks for that one, Tarek. Uh, Bear Secutor wrote in, and uh, just, just a little public service message here. Um, if you're going to write email a question in, try to keep it all in the body of the email. Sometimes people put part of it in the subject and then part of it in the body, and I don't usually copy the subject. I just copy the body and put it into my Google Doc, and then I have to go back and look, oh, crap, who was he talking about? So, yeah, if you can, that'd be great. When you email your questions in, just put it all in the body. Uh, we'd appreciate that, or I would at least. Um, but Bear Secutor was talking about Chase Williams, Gerard. He says, seems to me you were describing last week a guy very similar to Jonathan Lockett as a quarterback, a cornerback in high school. Do you agree? Uh, talk about Chase Williams. That's from Bear Secure. No, Chase Williams is, is bigger. He's much bigger than Jonathan Lockett, first and foremost. And I think that's probably the most significant evaluation point which separates him from Jonathan Lockett. And certainly in the eyes of USC, uh, USC, we talked about this time and time again, they love big defensive max. And Chase Williams is uh, he's, he's sort of on that line of being a bigger defensive back. He's probably about 6'1"-ish um, legitimately, and so he's, he's a bit bigger and a bit taller uh, than your average cornerback and certainly a bit bigger and a bit taller and a bit more physical than Jonathan Lockett. So I wouldn't make that comparison. There's some comparisons you can make in just in terms of how they play maybe, just their style, um, their skill set, uh, but physically uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a gap there between those two guys in terms of size. All right. Uh, thanks for that, Bear Scooter. David wrote in, and this actually gives me an idea we can talk about the Elite 11 a little bit too, but he said, GM, the only time UCLA seems to cause us trouble is when they have a legitimate dual-threat quarterback like Cade McNown and Brett Hundley. I'm beginning to have early nightmares about Dorian Thompson-Robinson. Three questions. Is he as good as advertised? Uh, is he as good or better than Matt Corral? And assuming no coaching changes, is he solidly committed to UCLA? That's from David. It's tough to predict the last. 
Um, the last question is obviously going to be a big issue for UCLA if Jim Moore leaves. Um, I, I, would he be a solid commit? No. Um, I could still see him ending up at UCLA, uh, but it, it really depends on who they're bringing in and, and kind of how that all goes down. And the interesting thing about UCLA is that offensively, they've, they've really kind of changed things up and gone to more of a pro-style system. Uh, we kind of talked about this in the past. Oregon and them are both sort of trying to be more like Stanford than they were. Um, their new uh, offensive coordinator comes over from Michigan, and so they're they're trying to be a little more of a kind of blue-collar, smash-mouth team. I don't know to what extent exactly. I mean, I haven't seen a practice um, this, this offseason, but uh, that kind of goes away a little bit from the mobile quarterback um, look to some extent. Um, is he as good as advertised? I don't know how good he is in terms of what he's been advertised. I don't know, I don't know what everybody's saying about him. Uh, from what I've seen, he's a good player. I mean, I've seen him ah, two or three times. Um, he's got a good arm. I don't know how uh, how good he is from a scrambling standpoint. I know he's a pretty good athlete, but he's actually right there with, uh, with Matt Corral in terms of speed, I think. I think, and this is really off the top of my head, and I hadn't looked at this spreadsheet in a while, I felt like Dorian Thompson Robinson had the same 40, or it was like maybe a 4.79, and then Matt Carell was like a 4.8 flat. I think that's what they were. Um, so in terms of just pure speed and athleticism, they're very close. Um, but, you know, the, it's always it's not necessarily about how fast you're running from a 40 standpoint. It's about how shifty you are because Sam Darnold isn't the fastest guy in the world from a 40 standpoint, but he's elusive, and he has great awareness in the pocket. And I think that's where Matt Corral is sort of underrated a bit. He really does have a good awareness in the pocket. He shifts his weight well, and he's got a cannon for an arm. And, and that's what I keep coming back to with all these guys, and, and people were asking me about Tanner McKee and now, you know, Dorian uh, Thompson-Robinson, and there's all these questions about how they compare. And, and I, I don't know. People are just sort of nervous about Matt Corral all the time. I don't, I don't know what it is. Um, he's got a rocket arm. And I wasn't at the Elite 11 this past weekend. Uh, Ryan was in shock and I think went down there Sunday. But I, I've seen Matt Corral play a bunch of times, and you can't teach that arm. And that arm opens up an offense, and it opens up plays, and it allows you to do lots of things. And if you have that with the elusiveness, then you have sort of what Sam Darnold has brought to the USC offense. You've got to have a guy that can get out of his own way. You've got to have a guy that on third and five can run the ball by design and get those five yards. You have to have a threat to run the ball, but you also have a guy that can get away from pressure and sort of intuitively know what might open up. And if he has that arm strength, he can get that ball down there regardless of what position his body is in, regardless of what position he is in the pocket. And that is where you produce first downs from nowhere and you can create because you can't defend some of those passes. You can't defend some of the passes that Sam Darnold threw last year. I mean, you just look at the Penn State game. Some of those passes he had just in the first half. You, you can't defend them. I mean, you can do everything perfectly as a defensive back or as a linebacker, and the guy just puts the ball on the money and the velocity of the ball is, is so high, you just can't react to it, and it's impossible. So, I mean, that's something that Matt Corral brings to the table in terms of just the velocity you can put on the football 
and I've seen him be able to get away from pressure and just move enough that he can create a couple more seconds of the play and then makes a big play out of that. And so I haven't seen, I'm not saying that Dorian Thompson Robinson doesn't have that ability. I haven't seen it. He didn't play a whole lot last year for Bishop Gorman. You got to remember that there was a guy named Tate Martell there and he was pretty much the package for Bishop Gorman. So we haven't seen a whole lot of Dorian uh, Thompson Robinson in, um, in, in, in game speed, uh, in pads, going at it and making plays and stuff like that. So, I mean, from what I've seen from him from a seven-on-seven standpoint, yeah, he's got a good arm, he's a good player, good accuracy. Um, you know, those Bishop Gorman teams he plays with are usually pretty stacked and probably, you know, got some good players. So it's not necessarily like, you know, he's got to make something out of nothing. Um, but I, 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 I'm fine with Matt Corral. I mean, I've said it before. I, I think that uh, you're, you're, you're good with him. And I don't see any reason why USC would be, you know, looking elsewhere just from a talent standpoint at other players. Now, obviously, I mean, I, I was asked this question about uh, Tanner McKee earlier in the year, and it was like, is there a scenario that USC would recruit him over Matt Corral? And I'm like, well, not really over him, but is there a scenario that they recruit him just in case? You know, there's a million things that can happen. I mean, USC could go 7-5 and five next year. And guess what? Matt Corral could say, eh, I don't want to go to USC. It's, kind of, it's not, you know, the dream uh, is dead. And and then you got to have a plan B. Um, or, you know, maybe you know, something else happens with, with uh, Matt Corral, um, and, and all of a sudden he becomes a less of a, of a likely option. And then, yeah, maybe you have to go and bring somebody else. So, I mean, there, there's always those scenarios. There's always those possibilities. But, I mean, in terms of, like, we have Matt Corral and it's all good and we're going to get him and we feel good about that and moving through the process, I don't see they're having to, um, to, to cultivate this other option at quarterback. Yeah, the, um, he, was, he was very impressive to me over the weekend at Lee 11. I went to two of the three days. Shotgun ended up going to the other one. A lot of people felt he had the strongest arm in the competition. He obviously made the, uh, to, you know, the trip to Oregon. He, he earned a trip to Oregon, so he'll be part of the, the opening finals, uh, after doing really well. Talking about Matt Corral at the Elite 11. Um, you know, and he, we've seen him, like Gerard said, we've seen him in high school. We've seen him in game speed with pads on and all that. Uh, Dorian Thompson Robinson, we haven't seen, he hasn't started a game in high school yet. So it's, you know, impressive for a kid like him to not have started a game in high school and be one of the, you know, named one of the top 11 quarterbacks in the country. Uh, it's pretty cool. So he's going to be up there at the opening as well. Um, yeah. So it, it, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to kind of watch him when we're up there checking him out, but you, you really want to watch him at Bishop Gorman it, with pads on, you know, game speed, pressure on it and, and see how it performs. I think he's going to do really, really well. Um, but it's, uh, it, it is, it is funny when you see a quarterback like that, Gerard, hasn't even started a high school game yet and he's getting all these accolades. Well, it's Bishop Gorman. So, you know, there's sort of an assumption like the next guy in line is going to be a, a very talented player as well. But to illustrate Matt Carell's, uh, arm strength, you know, the week before he was down at the Steve Clarkson, um, Dreammaker camp or quarterback retreat, he has a few different camps, they're all different names. Um, but it was down at Coronado. And this was the first year I hadn't gone down there because it was really more about uh, uh, college quarterbacks now. I mean, Adidas is putting a big emphasis on trying to, to sign some guys, and they've been getting worked by Nike. And so they, they wanted to bring in a bunch of the top quarterbacks at this retreat and, and sponsor it. And so it was really more about the quarterbacks 
that were at the college level doing more drills and, and, and being more involved. So they did bring in uh, Trevor Lawrence. They did bring in Matt Carell. They, bring, they did bring in Dorian Thompson. Um, they brought in a, a couple of high school kids. They didn't get a lot of reps. They didn't do a lot because, again, it was kind of the focus was on the college uh, uh, quarterbacks. But Matt Carell ended up winning the strongest arm competition of the whole camp. And that included Josh Rosen. That included um, uh, Montez. That included uh, the big kid Jacob Eason from uh, Georgia. In fact, Jacob Eason and I think Montez from Colorado were the two other finalists uh, that threw the ball 68 yards, um, where Matt Corral had the longest throw of 70 yards. And it wasn't from flat foot. It wasn't a standstill throw. It was, uh, I think you get like five steps or something leading up to the line of scrimmage and you throw the ball. And so they went 68, 68, 68, and they tied. And Matt Corral won the tiebreaker with the 70-yard throw. So that's against college quarterbacks. That's against guys that have been in college systems for a couple years now that are highly thought of college quarterbacks in addition to some of the highly thought of um, high school quarterbacks that were there. So, yeah, that again, it you can't teach that, man. I mean, when you see a guy that has a cannon for an arm, and and it's not just about arm strength. It's not, you know, it, it's not, oh, he can just throw the ball far. We know that Matt Corral can throw the ball far, and he can be accurate too. You know, he's, he's got the stats, and he's and he's done that. So it's not necessarily one of those things that he's just chucking the ball downfield and has zero, um, you know, technique or, or or anything like that. I mean, he he's he's of that ilk where he's coming from, you know, the Matt Barkleys, um, the 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 Cody Kesslers, um, that that sort of realm of guys that have been top quarterbacks and considered top quarterbacks for a long time and have been taught up. So he has some of those other intangibles, but when you have that arm strength it opens up an offense so much more. And a guy can just, you can make those throws. And we just seen it with Sam Darnold. I mean, it was, it was so clear as day with Sam Darnold versus Max Brown. Max Brown just didn't have that gun. And really, you know, Max Brown was okay. I, I would say from an arm standpoint, he was, he was above average. It really shows you, um, you know, the, the way the offense opened up when you start to compare him with Cody Kessler. That's really where you see Sam Darnold um, in terms of his ability to hit the out route and, and, and to, to get those skinny posts and to be able to, to hit the slant route where he just has so much velocity in the ball, the defender can't make a play on it. Even though the defense may be in the right coverage, he still can't make a play on it. And Cody Kessler just didn't have the arm strength, and he'd always have to check those balls down, and it really limited the offense. And so just at that point, it, it really it's, – it's almost now underrated arm strength. It's like people have kind of – the knee-jerk reaction was, you know, you had guys like Ryan Leaf that came out that were all arm strength and nothing else. They had rocks in their heads. And so everybody's like, oh, well, arm strength is overrated. And it's like, man, nah, you guys have gone too far now. <laughs> You've gone over to the point of where you're looking at arm strength like it's not that big a deal. And it really is a big a deal because, man, if you can make those passes that the defense just can't defend regardless of what defense they're in, regardless of how well they're playing the ball, I mean, that's a first down. I mean, how many – we talk about – Sam Darnold, his ability to scramble and to be elusive, and how many first downs he generated for USC that normally either Max Brown would have been sacked or Max Brown would have thrown an incompletion, just thrown the ball away. Um, it would have just it would have been a, a negative play or it would have been a, a play for no yards. And instead, you're 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 converting that with, with with Sam Darnold into a first down, and you're getting you're getting three more downs out of that. Like 
that's three more opportunities for the offense to make a play, to go get a touchdown. And it just doesn't – you just – you don't think of it as being as significant as it ends up being. And so we're talking about the elusiveness, but how many times has Sam Darnold just made a great play with his arm from a, from a, from a strength standpoint of being able to just will that ball past the defense and make an amazing play? And that's what converts – a first down. That's where, you know, he makes a move and then boom, he's able to chuck that ball off his back foot. I still think even right now, if you watch film of, of Sam Darnold last year, I think he could be coached up a lot still. I think, and I think that's what the NFL is really truly not over him about, is that he throws off his back foot probably too much still. He still makes some plays where it's a little bit of street ball and he just chucks that ball off his back foot, but he's got the arm strength. He can get away with it. Once he kind of settles in and he becomes a little more aware of where he is and kind of what his fundamentals are and his technique is in those situations, he's able to get that ball and he's able to push into it. It's going to open him up even more to be even a better quarterback. And so, yeah, the arm strength definitely plays. It's, it's a big deal. Sam Darnold obviously, obviously has both. Uh, we'll see if Matt Carell, from an elusive um, scrambling standpoint, has kind of what that, that je ne sais quoi that Sam Darnold has. That's going to be the bigger question. But he's got the arm strength. In fact, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know that he doesn't have a bigger arm than Sam Darnold. And quite frankly, I didn't know Sam Darnold had the arm strength that he has when I watched him in high school, I didn't see that. I saw he had a good arm. He never had a good arm, but I didn't think he had the arm strength that he's been showing um, at USC. So, I mean, he's improved in that standpoint. So you never know kind of what the upside is uh, when it comes to that kind of thing. Gerard Martinez on quarterback arm strength. You only get it here on the Parastel podcast. Good stuff there. Too. <laughs> no, that's good. Um, yeah, Matt Corral definitely. I mean, you can throw it through a barn. That's one thing, but can you hit guys? And I think he can do a little bit of both. So that's, uh, that's a good thing. So, well, yeah, he's never been like terribly inaccurate. I'm never his ball placement has always been good. I I haven't yeah. there there's those guys that just rocket the ball in and and they just you know bounce off receivers because they're ill placed and they're behind them or they're in front of them and it's like dude you're throwing the ball too damn hard for a guy to make a good catch on the ball because your placement is not you know it, it's not great. But if your placement is right in the numbers then there's no excuse. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, there's a thing as far as touch goes, but at the same time, if you're throwing the ball 15 yards downfield and it's over the middle, you've got to get that ball down and you've got to get it in there quick. And so um, I've never seen him throw a lot of kind of weird passes where they've been behind guys or whatever, and he's still chucking in there as hard as he can just because he's got a big arm and he wants to show it off. I haven't ever had that impression watching Matt Crow play. Yeah, yeah me neither. All right, we got one last one. Our buddy Reggie in Seattle, Gerard, and uh, so he's talking about uh, it's a JC defensive tackle, Dylan, and it's Faa Matau. Or how do you say is that? How do you say his name? Fa, yeah, Faa Matau. Matau. Okay, so I was close. He said he goes. I may be reading too much into this, but is it true that uh, Dylan has flipped from USC to Oklahoma? I've sort of seen that coming, especially in light of the recent defensive line transfers announced i thought maybe dylan would most likely end up having to go somewhere else can you shed any light on this matter i do not see this as a negative not sure why i don't see it as a loss to usc and he said p.s if we could get him for 2017 because of his transfer credits then we would be better off trying to get the texas or auburn defensive tackle transfer who would be eligible for 2018 after sitting out a year he said fight on reggie in seattle yeah so we haven't been able to get a hold of Dylan directly. I haven't really talked to him since he actually committed to USC. Um, he did officially uh, visit Oklahoma, 
And I've been told uh, from, from people on that side of things, Oklahoma side of things, that he did, in fact, commit to Oklahoma. Now, the interesting twist in all of this is literally the next day we hear all this news about Bob Stoops retiring. And so that's a little bit like, okay, you just committed to a school and the head coach has just announced that he's retiring. Um, so that's, that's, this is still sort of maybe a developing story. I know that it was a surprise uh, to USC, and from what I gathered, um, they, they just weren't really sure what was going on with the kid. My take, and this is a little kind of war room, and I know this is a free podcast, but I kind of have to set some context here. My take into talking to him when he got his scholarship offer from USC and he ended up committing was that there were schools involved that were going to go after him if they thought they could get him in for the 2017 season. That was a big deal. And USC was not going to be able to do that because he had to take like another course and he's basically at the end of his semester now, so there really wasn't a, a way to fit that course in. At least that was the impression I was getting. He, Dylan himself, was kind of not really sure about like his eligibility and, and things like that. I, I had to kind of go above and beyond to find out sort of where he was sitting at Cerritos Junior College and sort of understand sort of what, where he was academically so where he could transfer. And everything that I got from people was in order to go to USC, he's probably going to have to go – uh, in December would be the earliest, and he would be a two-for-two two guy. So he would have two years to play two, um, which is all right, but I think that it was definitely a much more of a commodity if he could have been able to be on the 2017 roster. Because then you're adding, not only is he getting another year to play, because then he's getting three to play three, but you're getting a guy right now. And so... You know, if there's any injuries or anything, and, you know, USC is going to have probably a couple of spots on the 85 that to open up um, from an initial standpoint, you get him right now and you're able to plug him in on the roster. And that, that works. Um, now, there's still been talk like Kevin Scott may come back to USC, maybe eligible. I don't know if that would happen for August. Um, but there's still talk that, you know, he's um, not been written off, you know, like, uh, um, Noah Jefferson was just kind of, you know, he's kind of out of the picture now. Um, we still know that EJ Price is still, you know, at USC. So there's still some, some options there in terms of filling out the 85-man roster. Um, and as mentioned, uh, there is the potential of a transfer. Um, that guy would have to sit out, though. Um, that's going to be something different. You're not going to be able to get that player to play right away. And I think that was the big thing about Dylan Famatu. I think that was the the, the big, like I said, the, the valuable point of him being able to come in right away and be able to play, but that it doesn't look like it's realistic with USC. So I think with Oklahoma, they probably told him, or probably maybe they can get him in right away and he could play right away, whereas he couldn't at USC, and that's probably maybe the deal breaker for him, which is understandable. I mean, you, you know, if you could go into a school and you could sign up and, and be able to, to, to enroll in August as opposed to having to go back to junior college for another semester and play another semester of junior college ball, in order to get out in December, yeah, I mean, that's, that's very understandable. Um, but uh, in terms of the, the two transfers that were mentioned, Jordan Elliott was the transfer from, from Texas. From what I understand, I believe he's transferring to Missouri. I think that's already been announced. Um, and then Antoine Jackson is still up in the air. Antoine Jackson actually, Auburn is blocking his transfer to any SEC schools, Clemson and Ohio State, which is interesting. I don't know why Ohio State is in there because I don't think Auburn plays Ohio State. 
Um, but those schools, basically Auburn is blocking him from being able to transfer to any of those schools. So it does continue to open up maybe perhaps an, an avenue uh, for USC. Um, from what I understand, I, I think I read an article where he was talking about uh, South Carolina being a school that uh, he was looking to maybe go to. Um, but, again, if, if Auburn's able to block him from going to SEC schools uh, and really sort of almost that region because you're including uh, Clemson in that, uh, then, you know, maybe USC has a chance. Um, if he's looking to go to South Carolina, though, it does kind of give you the impression that maybe he wants to stay regionally. Yeah. All right. Well, Gerard, great stuff. Hey, we went, didn't have a whole lot to talk about today. We still went an hour. Not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah. That was all that rambling about Trader Joe's. And, um, <laughs> I don't think that was the majority you know, of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. If we, there was a lot we of were just, uh, <laughs> talking, you know, about uh, life and stuff like that, which I'm sure people are like, okay, I can fast forward through all this. Right. Hey, it's free. So, you know, if you don't like what we're saying, it's a free podcast. So you can skip skip parts. Yep. You can listen to different shows, whatever you want to do. But we do, we do like to streamline that stuff. I mean, it's, we definitely know the reason why people are plugging into it. So we don't want to give you too much uh, nonsense about whatever's going on. But um, hopefully we we got to the topics that people are interested in. Yeah, for sure. And, that, you know, like I said, send in your questions, podcast at uscfootball.com. We love hearing from you, uh, you know. Tally all the questions. I put them in there. We don't have Gerard on every week, but whenever we have him on, I make sure I save all the questions and then try to ask them all. Sometimes there's so many we don't get to all of them, but most of the time we do, and we did today, so that's good. So no more no more recruiting questions in our queue. So if you want to send some in, you'll be top of the list. Um, well, Gerard, thanks again, and uh, yeah, look forward to the war room tomorrow morning. It's Thursday evening, so or Thursday afternoon, we'll have a war room. Early on Friday on USAFootball.com. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you, you're putting in that one. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that's a, it's war room time. <laughs> I have no be... idea at this point in time as we speak. I just, that's, uh, that'll be a 1130 at night, uh, decision where I go, oh yeah, I can talk about this or oh yeah, there's something that comes up. Yeah. We'll work on it. Yeah. That's what, that's what we end up doing on Thursday evening. We work on the war room. So. Uh, all right, that's Gerard Martinez. Follow him on Twitter at GMartLive. I am Ryan Abraham. Follow me on Twitter at InsideTroy. Hope you guys enjoyed this edition, free edition of the Parastyle Podcast, USC Recruiting Podcast. We like to call it the Trojan Blast. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we will talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Parastyle Podcast, presented by USCFootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.